Welcome to Innovation Capital, presented by PatSnap. Here on Innovation Capital, we take a fresh, unfiltered look at some of the biggest topics shaping innovation today. Leave everything you know about innovation at the door, because you have now entered a universe where we turn established ideas on their head and ask the questions that fuel great innovation, growth and scalability. This is Innovation Capital. Hi there, and welcome back to Innovation Capital, presented by PatSnap. Today on the show, we are joined by Dr. Haley Bosher. Haley is a senior lecturer in intellectual property law at Brunel University, London, as well as visiting research fellow at the Center for Intellectual Property Policy and Management. She is a writer and book review editor for specialist IP blog, IPCAT, founder of World IP Women Network, an intellectual property and entertainment law consultant and legal advisor to the Featured Artist Coalition. Not only that, her most recent book just got released, Copyright in the Music Industry. This is a phenomenal interview, and we hope you enjoy. So welcome, Haley, to Innovation Capital. Hope, hope you're keeping well. Yes. Well, in the current climate, I'm doing pretty well. Excellent. Brilliant. So we were really excited to kind of connect with you today. A number of our team have started a stalking your YouTube channel and some of your content. And also, I know you've recently published a book, so we'd love to just get a, a, an overview of your mission and vision in today's kind of meeting, but would love to kick off about your story, Haley, how you ended up in the wonderful world of IP. And most importantly, IP being such a big universe, what really kind of excites you in terms of your focus area? That's Those are some really nice questions. I'm very happy to answer those. I actually did performing arts before I did law. I had a love, I just have a love for theatre, music, film, the creative arts. Uh, and at that age, it was really my ambition to be in the, in, on that side of things, really. But I got to the end of my college diploma in performing arts and thought, I'm quite distinctly average at this. And I'd quite like to do something where I could make some money. <laughs> so I took off to university and did a law degree instead. Um, which I wasn't that engaged, to be honest. I thought most of it was pretty boring. But in the final year, I studied entertainment law and intellectual property law, and I loved it. Um, And from there, I was offered a scholarship to do a PhD in copyright law, which, to be honest, at the time, I had no idea what that was. But they said, if you do it, you get to be a doctor. And I thought, Dr. Boschus, that sounds pretty cool. I'll do that. Um, So it was kind of quite serendipitous and... I sort of fell into it, really. Um, And now what I do is uh, I'm an academic. I'm a senior lecturer at Brunel University, London, and I teach intellectual property law. I run the intellectual property pro bono service there, and I research mainly in the area of copyright, but also I do a little bit of trademark as well. Um, And as you mentioned, I've got a book coming out, comes out this month. It's called Copyright in the Music Industry, and it's all about... Like, I want to say that with lots of research that you do as an academic, the purpose of the research is, you know, to inform the literature and move things forward in research. This book is really not that. I wrote it for creators. It's just a gift. There you go. Uh, I I wrote it for musicians, for artists, for people in the music industry, 
to help them understand more about their rights. It, I think, also will appeal, appeal to people who are researching and interested in, in copyright in the music industry. But the primary audience, it's not, it's not a law book. It's not written like a law book. I joke around in it quite a lot, which is not normal in um, academic research. But it's there to help people understand more about their rights, which I think is so important. It's just always been my philosophy that knowledge is power. And so it's there to help inform people about their rights and um, help them kind of navigate the copyright sphere in the context of the music industry. Uh, And as you said, alongside that, I've done a little podcast to... It's so fun. We're interviewing people from all areas of the music industry to talk about their experience of copyright and the industry and the rights and stuff like that. So it's really fun. So that's fascinating. So the music industry from a technological standpoint, ever since Steve Jobs came up with his amazing set of innovations around completely disrupting the old guard, with the first the iPod and then the, the music store. So I'm guessing there's been so much change, which was led by technology disrupting the IP front. But fast forwarding on to 2021, what are some of the key areas that content creators, talented musicians have to keep a pulse on in terms of ensuring they have good command of their IP? What, what are some of the big things which they need to keep a, a kind of a close eye on? Well, I would say that copyright and IP is always evolving alongside technology. So you're right, Steve Jobs made a big difference and the invention of the iPod changed things. But at the time, so did the cassette, so did vinyl, you know, so did the printing press. So every time we have a new technological invention or even changes in society, often you need a new law to kind of understand where where things lie around that technology. So copyright and technology have an intertwined relationship and they should always continue to evolve, right? Um, And that's part of the reason why you need a little bit of understanding about copyright because it is always changing. This is not like a one-time task where you learn all about copyright and you're like, I'm done for the rest of my life because it will keep changing. And at the moment in the UK, we're having a review of some of the rights that affect artists and musicians and people in the music industry, particularly in relation to how the streaming model works with Spotify and YouTube to try and figure out if there's a way that artists and musicians can be better remunerated for their work when it's streamed. And that's a really huge, it's going to be, it's really huge um, development in the law. Uh, It's ongoing right now. for copyright nerds like me it's super exciting um and something that definitely musicians and people in the industry should be aware of I think especially in the UK but also around the world to keep a pulse like you say on what's going on because with the developments as we evolve with technology nothing really happens in isolation so we always keep an eye on what's going on in America in Canada in Europe and you know, learn from each other. And so it tends to be that they don't happen in isolation. It's not like, although every country has a different copyright law, we, you know, we have these international agreements and, and some basis. And I think we learn from each other. You see how it's being done in America, you see how it's being done in Germany, and you think, well, 
how can we do it here that serves our community the best? It's fascinating you mentioned some of the technological changes because that's something that we've observed here where some of the amazing platforms, they've made a huge change in the market. So you have YouTube, Spotify. However, it does seem the artist is shortchanged in terms of compensation, but also kind of ownership rights on how that content's distributed. And we are hearing, or we are working with now, a bunch of fascinating folks deploying blockchain and more of a decentralized way of an artist actually permanently owning their IP. Are you seeing some exciting developments on that front, Haley, where blockchain and decentralized platforms kind of are the future for artists to really take ownership of, of the great work they do? So in my book, I have two chapters, one on blockchain and one on artificial intelligence. Like it definitely is an important area to keep an eye on the developments that are happening at the minute. And it could have a big impact on the way that artists manage their IP or their copyright. I have some reservations about blockchain because, as you probably know, it's a ledger that can't be edited. And the thing about music data is that it's not static. And so we might need a way that the data is more flexible to be able to really serve the music industry. And that that's something that's not yet been figured out. I think some people dream that blockchain can save or solve so many of the big problems in the music industry, as you say, about remuneration, getting to the artist, because sometimes this can take years or sometimes it never happens at all. Um, and there's a there's a big data issue in in the industry. What I think is more of a realistic kind of understanding of what blockchain can do is I think it can be an assist. I don't think it's going to solve the problem. I don't think we're going to have necessarily blockchain licenses operating on their own or um, like a blockchain registration system, basically, for copyright, which I think is some people's ambition. But as I said, I just don't think that copyright and music data is that static. It needs to be edited. The way that we make music is so fluid. You have different people coming on. Information gets changed. Um, yeah, I'm not sure it can work because of the fact that it, it needs to be editable. I know, for example, of um, some work being done in a London-based company where they're looking at... Um, I was just thinking before I said it, like whether they'd be fine with me sharing this information, but very vaguely without disclosing anything because it's not on the market yet. Um, it's an app that would assist artists and music makers um, in connecting who the creator is with the re with a register or with the collecting societies to help them get paid quicker and to under try and avoid a situation where we don't know who should be credited on a track. Okay, that's interesting. So that's fascinating. So potentially ledger technology is the future because an artist can permanently track where their content's going, where it's being used. So that's a fascinating space that we, we closely observe here at PatSnap as well. And on a broader level, does this spin out to general content creators? So musicians aside, there's some absolute amazing influences out there now. Um, there seems to be... <laughs> A new star every quarter, especially during lockdown. And I've personally definitely uh, been introduced to some new channels on YouTube, especially during the lockdown period. So how does this 
extrapolate to content creators on Insta, YouTube, who might be in health and wellness or doing something in the finance space? What, what, what does it look like in that ecosystem, Hayley? So in some ways, you're right. In some ways, it's similar and it will be the same situation for people making film, audio and photography, creative outputs, which are all regulated by copyright um, and ma- managed in this, through the same mechanisms. Um, and for some content creators, it will be more straightforward, especially if you're a solo person just doing it on your own. There's no confusion about who owns who owns what. That could actually be much more straightforward. And as you said, could be used to help trace when content when and how and where content is used and that could help you get paid if that's what you're doing um for other areas like film it's just as complicated if not more because there's more people involved in the creation of a film um and actually i used to live in the netherlands and work at a creative institution teaching filmmakers about the laws they need to know to do with making a film and documentary film as well uh and it is that is actually a bit of a minefield because you've got the director, you've got the producer, you've got different people, um, and then you've got the soundtrack. Like there's so many elements from a copyright perspective that make up the film that can actually make it more complicated. Uh, but in terms of like a content creator, like a YouTuber, then it's usually like one person or a small team, so it's a bit more manageable. See, spinning off slightly to something else you built out, which really inspired some of a lot of our team members here at PatSnap, because we've got a, a very equally deployed workforce in terms of gender, is your amazing work around the world, IP Women. So, what led you to create that association? Because we had a chance to really dig into the online portal. Would love to get the backstory behind uh, your inspiration for building that out. Great, I'd love to tell you that. So. Basically, the true story is I was, it was Christmas time and I needed to, I was doing an editing job where I had lots of different authors talking about different intellectual property aspects. And I looked down the list and they were all male. And I thought to myself, this can't be right. I'm not, I was previously not the editor, so somebody else did it. And then, and then it became my job. And that's when I reviewed it. And I was like, this is not, I'm not okay with this. And then I thought to myself, okay, well, I'll just, you know, invite some female authors to contribute to this edited collection. And it occurred to me that other than the women that I know directly, and IP is a fairly small community, but at the same time, you know, that wasn't the best strategy to be like, contact all the people I know who do IP in terms of um, helping me with the resource. So I was just thinking like, what would be great is if I had a better way to find out where there are some women who do IP because visibility is not great. And just to give some context, this is something that had been playing on my mind for a while because as a woman who works in IP, it's so glaringly obvious to me that I go to conferences and there's an all-male lineup. And I'm the kind of person who goes up to the organiser and says, excuse me, why are there no women here? Uh, you know, where's your diversity? And seriously, a lot of times I've been told or had been told there's no women here because we didn't know any, or we couldn't find any or whatever excuse they had about not the lack of visibility of women in IP. And I know that there are women who work in IP. It was really a visibility issue. So I decided to just create this database 
where you could easily find any woman who works in IP, in any field of IP, in any position, anywhere in the world. So there's no excuse if you are creating a edited collection, which is what I was doing at the time, or a panel discussion for a conference, you can just go to the website and search. You can search by name, location, area of expertise, position, anything you like, and contact a woman in IP to diversify your panel or whatever the project that you're working on. So it was really, for me, just solving a gaping problem of visibility of women in IP to push that forward and and make that easy so then there wasn't really an excuse what came of it was also a community so I created just like a LinkedIn group and again at the time as I said I was just it was Christmas holidays I was sat in my living room on my laptop like I'll just do this this is fine It, it won't take long uh and now we have like I can't remember the last time I checked I think literally a thousand people or something in the um, LinkedIn group and about 500 women on the actual directory um, where it became a space for supporting each other and sharing information. Sometimes I put job adverts on there, discount codes that people offer as part of the, um, just to kind of enable women in IP as well. So that's how that happened. I'm guessing post-COVID, when we're back to some form of normality, is there any plans to do events where you get the community together and and kind of present and, and really push this initiative forward? Because it inspired a lot of the folks here in our team. So um, what are the plans moving forward for, the, for this for this motion? Um, yeah, before COVID, there was definitely plans to do events. And um, we did have one social event in London, but it was just literally went for drinks which was quite nice um but then I thought exactly like a, a make it a platform where we can you know have a conference or whatever uh, and I've got some partnership organizations that are similar or have similar goals um and we have a division like a Scandinavian division of of women in IP group who work who sort of do their own networking as well uh, so absolutely we'd love to do an event um quite honestly the only reason we haven't done one because we could have done one online, is that, as I said, I just did it myself and it's not funded and I'm quite busy. <laughs> so um, I just haven't got around to it, quite frankly. Uh, so, yeah, we will absolutely do some events in the future. I Like, the goals are twofold. It's, like, about making women more visible so it gives them a platform to talk about whatever is the area that they're working in but it was also a community so it's nice to get together and talk about the perils of being a woman and working in IP I guess. <laughs> okay makes sense and, and, and going back to the work you're releasing this month uh, copyright in the music industry there's, there's definitely a component on the book which caught my eye the impact of social media on copyright infringement so obviously it's been the last, well, God, I feel old now. The last fourteen years, I'd say, kind of oh five onwards, is where social media, these platforms, have really transformed our day to day. To be fair, in a good way and sometimes in a bad way. So, from a copyright standpoint, what have been some of the big macro mega trends which have caused caused challenges in the marketplace, which is which has led to people needing to develop a brand new way of approaching copyright in social media, Haley? 
Yeah, so I actually also, before I sort of started delving into the music area of copyright, I've done a few papers and research projects in, in social media as sort of like the topic of the of the research. Um, and I kind of transplanted that into the context of the music industry for the book. Um, and I think there's kind of like general issues like ownership of copyright material on um, social media, the sharing of copyright protected material, whether it's copyright infringement or not. I mean, one of the biggest problems I came across in general is that people don't understand copyright and so they share things that they think they can share because the whole point in social media is sharing. And the platform's designed to, obviously, they want you to stay on there for as long as possible so they can make as much money as possible from advertising revenue. And that is by sharing your own content and third-party content. So through my consultancy, really, and also the pro bono and things like that, I've had clients who have had letters asking them for money um, for sharing copyright-protected content and it, that it was infringement. We're not really seeing this in the courts because when you get a claim like that, you pay it because you're, it's right. You you have infringed copyright. It just seems a bit absurd because we're like, but this is what everybody does on social media and it's just bad luck if you get caught. So there's a big, what I'm trying to say is there's a disparity between how we use and understand social media and copyright regulation, which says that sharing content copyright protected content without permission is infringement um, so that's a big aspect of the social media research that I do looking at that and also the terms and conditions and we saw some high profile disputes about this you know with Chloe Kardashian and Gigi Hadid all having court cases around sharing pictures of themselves on their own profile uh, and I think that just kind of exemplifies the bigger issue around that um, area in terms of the music industry in my book I look specifically at things like TikTok which has had a huge impact on the music industry some positives some negatives you could argue um but the fact of the matter is if you're in the music industry if you're releasing music if you're a manager if you're a record label publisher everything like you need to know about TikTok it's like a big part of making a hit now when Imagine, like, literally five years ago, this wouldn't have been a thing. But now when you release music, especially pop music in particular, they have a TikTok strategy as part of the marketing campaign. So it's really important to understand, like, the impact of social media on consumption behaviours and consumers, how fans find music, discovery, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then obviously, like, the regulatory side being that, for a long time, TikTok was unlicensed and people weren't, so the artists whose music was being played on TikTok, they weren't being remunerated for that. Now it is mostly licensed. So they pay a license to record labels who then should, <laughs> I'm sure they do, um, or will distribute that wealth to the artists and the musicians. Um, and there's different like global licensing agreements around the world and there's still some to be decided and it all happens behind closed doors so we don't even know what they say it's very controversial um but it's an interesting area and definitely something that that people need to in the music industry obviously are um and should be looking at 
On a broader level, you mentioned some of those popular names in content creation, fashion, and, and mainstream media. But do you see now in the next four or five years more power being shifted to the actual content creators in terms of um, copyright, freedom to operate, more control? Because the, kind of, the, the rise of uh, the individuals versus the platforms, do you see some of that bubbling up and, and causing big platforms to kind of change their strategy? I think the power of the people yeah, I, is massive. Like, I couldn't agree more. You've, we've seen it with the Wall Street thing. I don't, I don't want to go into the details of it, but, you know, that is the mass individuals rising up against the big corporations. We're, as I mentioned, with the big streaming inquiry we've got going on in the UK at the moment, that is also a made massive example of artists collectivizing and coming together to for the first time really in like history standing up to the record labels and being like we're not happy with this because before there was always this like kind of David and Goliath like the big record labels have all the power and and they do and it's not even to say like that they don't offer a service and and they do you know there are many artists and musicians that are happy with their record deals but there are maybe many more, especially those on legacy deals who are not getting a fair um, remuneration for their work. Uh, and I think social media in general really empowers the people. Um, a friend of mine who I did a joint paper with her where she is a, she's a social media expert and I did the law side. Um, we were looking at like, well, she, in, in her research in particular, looks at like why people go onto social media and complain about a company. And it's so interesting about like the motivations of the people and the difference between, you know, before social media, if you had a complaint with a company, you, the word of mouth, you know, you can tell a few people not to shop there or whatever. Um, and they might listen. But now I can go on social media and tell the whole world or anyone who will listen whether I'm happy with this service or this product or not. And so that does put a lot of power in the hands of the people. And I've seen it with things like um, intellectual property claims. As I mentioned, like some of the stuff I do is to do with trademarks. And I've seen like cases where a big brand has sued a small family-run company. The family-run company put it on Twitter. People go mad. And then the big brand is like, oh, sorry, like, <laughs> actually, we'll just reverse that. We didn't mean it because of the the reputational damage was worse than the fact that their trademark was maybe being infringed by the smaller company. So, and I think that that applies across the board from Wall Street to music to, I'm not trying to say that all the individuals necessarily should get what exactly what they want, Copyright, especially, is all about balancing the interests of different stakeholders. You have to take account for the rights holders and the public interest. And when I say the rights holders, I mean, also, you know, in the music context, that's the record label, but also the artist as well and the creator. And copyright is like this balancing act where they're always trying to balance like how much power and rights they give to the rights holders versus the limitations and exceptions and ways that the public can use and access that material. And this has always, always been the copyright kind of agenda. And 
I think the difference is now that, especially when I was doing my PhD, I looked at kind of like some of the engagement of um, when they were changing the law. And when we had that, we had a change in the law in 1952 and then 88. And you could see that in the beginning, it was only companies lobbying the government, getting what they wanted from the law. And then over time, we've seen more individuals, more organizations that represent creators. And so all the voices are being heard. And that's really important. So I think social media and collectivizing and technology enables people and communities to get together, organize, and then their voice heard where it wasn't heard before. And that's amazing and really important. And hopefully that will make fairer law and better policy and regulation. In terms of looking five, six years out now, where do you see in the way copyright will be managed? Will it be done in the same form factor or is it more power to the individual? Are you seeing any technological trends which shape the future of how copyright's managed in the, in the spaces you care about, Haley? What does the future look like? It's a good question. I mean, in terms of copyright management, we manage copyright through contracts. It's always been that way. Um, and so knowledge is is power in that sense because when every a contract is just an agreement that's recognized by law and you can write anything in it that's within reason as long as the two parties agree and a lot of the time especially in the areas i work in has a lot of mystery and complexity around the contracts and a lack of negotiation power for the individual and the creator because they just want the record deal or they you know, they want the publishing deal. So they just sign it, they don't really care, or even maybe read or understand what the contract says. Um, although in the music industry, it because this happened a lot bef- before, they are actually required to seek legal advice on their contract. But it doesn't stop them signing it because they just want the immediate reward, which, you know, is totally understandable. Um, but I do think that people understanding more about copyright and their rights, um, and what they can and can't do. And that empowerment will give them more kind of leverage in their negotiation to decide for a fairer contract and a fairer management of the copyright. Um, Just as an example, like in um, under US law, artists can get some of their rights back after 35 years. There's, There's a process, but it's possible. And that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. And it's one of the things that the artists and musicians are bringing up in the current UK inquiry to be like, yeah, why don't we have that? Why don't we get our rights back? Do you see what I mean? It's like something that was not really thought of before. And now suddenly it's coming in kind of the collective consciousness that, yeah, maybe we maybe we should have that. Um, especially because we're seeing, probably have seen in the news, lots of artists now... Um, selling their catalogs and making huge amounts of money, which is great for them. That's like their their pension, the rest of their life, they're set now because they are able to, they've got the rights and they've sold them. And that's only happened because they negotiated for that in the first place. So I, don't hey, if I, I don't know if I actually answered your question. Yeah, your perspective is, is broad and <laughs> a really unique stream of IP that you focus on and and we've really enjoyed connecting with you today because you brought a fresh perspective and covered a topic which we don't cover often 
innovation capital, to be fair, looking at copyright within the world of music, the arts, now the rising world of influence, influencers. So this has been brilliant. So just a fun, quick fire round before we wrap up, Haley. All right. Top two books that you recommend. What's really kind of shaped you? If you could, get, if you could give two books to a friend or, or a loved one. Am I allowed to say copyright and music industry by me? <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think we gave that plug earlier. <laughs> uh, outside of your book. <laughs> outside of my book, right there. One of the first books I read when I was just starting out doing my PhD was by Bill Patrie. There's two actually of his, that's a bit cheating, but uh, How to Fix Copyright. And he has another one called Moral Panics. or I can't remember the exact title right now. But they were both amazing and they definitely kind of opened my mind to be like, oh, yeah, we can question this copyright thing. It's not like a natural phenomenon that is set in stone. We should really start thinking about does it work? So, yeah, I would say Bill Patry's probably How to Fix Copyright was probably the one that impacted me the most. And then I read the other one second. Um, More recently, I'll pick a a recent one for my second one. Uh, I just read Emily Hudson's book. It's called Drafting Copyright Exceptions. And I mean, the book, it just blew my mind. This woman is amazing because you're reading it and you're like, first of all, we don't do a lot of empirical research in law. It's not that common. And she's done all these studies. She interviewed people. It's international. It looks at Canadian, US and UK law. I think if I'm remembering correctly, it's great. It's a really good read. Even if like, I don't really particularly focus on copyright exceptions in my research, but it was just such a excellent book. And I really liked what she did. What that really interests me is she looked at not only the law as it is in the statutes and the case law, but she looked at the impact of that actual law and the changes on the institutions by interviewing the people that it was directly linked to that law. And I just think we should be doing loads more research like that, like actually talking to the people that the law regulates to see if they even know about it and how it works and whether it's good or not for them. So, yeah, Emily Hudson's drafting copyright exceptions. Thank you. And this is really left field. Alien life form, believer or non-believer and why? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh Alien life form, I would say, you know, I can't rule it out. Go on. I, yeah, I like to believe in a little bit of maybe magic and fun. So why not? Okay, believer, why? Well, because anything is possible. <laughs> okay, that's definitely that <laughs> spirit. So Haley, it's been awesome connecting with you today and learning about the wonderful world of IP you operate in. So please stay safe. Please stay well. and. Uh, Pleasure connecting with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Thank you. And that is it for today's episode with Haley Bosher, everyone. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you did, all we ask is you hit the subscribe button, you share this out with someone in your community, your friend group. We truly do appreciate Haley for jumping on the podcast today. And if you've made it this far and listened to the entire podcast, we want to give you something. We want to help you spark an impactful discussion around innovation within your organization. You can download your free copy of our ebook, The Connected Innovation Intelligent Blueprint, uh, where in this report, we're going to explore what connected innovation intelligence is 
and how the world's disruptors are using it to grow, compete, and win in a hyper-competitive world. If you want to grab a copy of this free ebook, super simple, all you have to do is go to patsnap.com forward slash blueprint. Again, that is patsnap.com forward slash blueprint. Until next time, continue to embrace your childlike wonder and stay curious.